Got an interesting uh, message for today and, and kind of fun. Uh, the question before the house is this one, do miracles still happen? And we're going to take a look at that. And um, the first thing I want to do, though, is tell you a story from when I was in high school. I went to a church in Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, which is really funny because back then I kind of twanged. Um, yes, and it used to be when I, I thought I'd got ridden of it, but while my parents still lived there, they'd call on, and all of a sudden I'd, I'd hear it coming back. And, and, and I learned something that when you're in Tulsa, you don't say okay, you say okay. And it, it's even spelled differently. And, and then you say a lot of this is true. Um, and and it's, everything just has to have that little bit of a lilt there. It's not quite like Texas. Um, and, you, and, there, and, and, and insiders do know the difference. Um, but while I was there, I attended a church downtown, the first United Methodist Church of Tulsa, Oklahoma. Big old Gothic building. Stuff happened there that was kind of cool. Uh, there was a man there who was diagnosed with a horrible form of cancer in his face. And it had apparently infected his musculature and on one side of his face, and it was terminal. There was not much they could do for him, so they were going to uh, have a surgery for him where they would literally remove one half his facial muscles and all that stuff and replace it with a big old black patch. Not pretty. And not a, not a nice way to walk around on the block because I'm sure that would create quite the sideshow, as they say. Everybody's staring and not liking it. Um, yeah, not fun. So he immediately goes to um, the leaders of our church and asks for prayer. And so the leaders of the church begin to pray about how they should pray, which I think is kind of cool. They said, so God, how should we pray for this man? And they got a very strange answer back. And they told him, they said, we don't think you're ready for prayer yet. And of course, he was furious. What do you mean? What am I supposed to do? And they said, well, we have a sense that you want to be in control of how it happens. On your time, your way. And, uh, and we really think that before we pray for you, you need to kind of go and wrestle with that a little while. So the man just stomped out of the meeting, furious, went home, threw a big old pity party, but then decided, well, maybe I ought to do like they suggest. So he began to wrestle with this. Lord, what's going to happen to me? I'm terrified. And through that wrestling process, he finally came to the conclusion, you know, I'm good with whatever you do because I trust you for it and I know your promises are good. So he went back and he said, I think I'm ready. And in whatever the outcome, if my healing is through death when I see Jesus face to face, that's okay. Now, I just marvel at the ability of someone to come to that kind of conclusion and have peace with something horrendous like that. But he did. So at that point, the church leaders prayed for him. And at the end of it, he didn't notice any change, didn't feel any different. He said, that's okay. Then if my healing is when I see Jesus face to face, that's okay. Well, the next day he went in for um, some final x-rays to prep for his surgery. And the x-ray tech took the x-rays and then shared them with his doc. And they were stunned. Nothing there. They thought, surely we made a mistake. Took another set of x-rays. Still nothing there. Okay, maybe we misdiagnosed. Well, they went back at the records. Nope, lots of cancer there. And they couldn't explain it. Do miracles still happen? And if you think that's interesting, uh, about a week and a half ago at, 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 in this congregation, um, we were praying for a family and a very similar thing happened to a family member. Diagnosed with scary cancer. They went and took a look at it again, all gone. Was it a misdiagnosis? Was it a miracle as we understand them? Does it matter? Do miracles still happen? Well, before we answer that question, I want to answer a prior question, and that is, what on earth is a miracle? What's a miracle? 
And we've got to ask this, because if we don't know what we're talking about, then we're likely to get a goofy answer. Do miracles still happen? We may be arguing for the wrong thing. Who knows? But we probably ought to figure it out. Here's what one leading dictionary says a miracle is. And here we go. This is from the American Heritage Dictionary of the English Language, 4th edition, copyrighted by Hewton Miffin Company. And I quote, An event that appears inexplicable by the laws of nature and so was held to be supernatural in origin or an act of God. In other words, when we can't figure it out, must be a miracle. When we can't explain it with science, must be a miracle. Well, there's a problem with that definition. Because what happens if one day you can explain it? Does it stop being a miracle? There's all kinds of sudden healings and strange phenomena that modern science has been able to explain. Do they stop being miracles? If this is the case, then it makes it very tricky to figure out exactly what a true miracle is. In fact, one might say, perhaps there are no miracles at all, just events waiting to be explained. So are there any miracles at all? Well, I think the Bible could help us on this one. And here's what the Bible says about miracles. And, and, and this is sort of summarizing um, the whole Bible. And it's very simple. A miracle is simply this. An act of God designed to get our attention. Pretty well, that's it. An act of God designed to get our attention. Kind of like the PowerPoint there. Now, it may or may not be supernatural. It may or may not be explainable by modern science. That's not the point. Because a miracle is not just supposed to dazzle us with all kinds of supernatural stuff, although that can happen. The point of a miracle is to open our eyes to God's presence in our life so we can experience His life-transforming power, love, and truth. That's the bottom line of a miracle. Now, let's do a little more Bible study fun. I want to look at um, the, the words in the original Greek in the New Testament, and, and I won't worry about... Well, we might have you pronounce them just for fun. Who knows? Um, we'll start with the first one. We get it, our word dynamite from it, or dynamo. And um, it's pronounced dunamis. So turn to your neighbor and say dunamis. See, you learn Greek. Now, what does that mean? It means a literally an act of power. So in a lot of places in the Bible where it says Jesus performed various miracles, in the original language it said, and Jesus performed various power acts. That he performed various acts of power, which means... I think that the author is trying to tell us that Jesus did things that showed that God was afoot and he, was a, he, and he was in charge of circumstances and circumstances did not get the last word. So in a lot of ways, the dunamis word tells us who's in charge. The second word, though, speaks to what kind of miracles. And this word is the word where we get the word sign. And um, just trust me, because the Greek word is semeon, and that kind of migrated through history into sign. And the writer of the Gospel of John uses that word a ton. And that literally talks about the purpose of a miracle, that it points to the author of the miracle. You think of signs. Signs point to something else. For example, you see a stop sign. We don't admire the sign and drive right by. And if you do, bad things will happen. The sign points to something else. In other words, stop, you know. Likewise, the miracle points to the author of the miracle. I'd like to do this just to kind of walk to see how that plays itself out. Let's take a look at um, Acts 3, 1 through 9. If you've got your Bibles, keep them open to that. And um, what we're going to do is just walk through that a little bit. Starting out, one day, Peter and John were going up to the temple for the 3 o'clock prayer service. I don't think it's any accident that um, the author of the book of Acts begins the story that way. In other words, often stuff happens when we start connecting to God. 
no matter where you are, what you are, what's going on with you, what you've done, what's been done to you, I think one of the building blocks for change is to begin to start having a conversation with God, even if it's one that's not very pleasant. In fact, I think one of the biggest challenges for followers of Jesus is the ability to be angry with God. Because we sometimes have been taught that you can only come to God when you pretty up. But did you know that two-thirds of the book of Psalms teaches us how to have a fight with God? How to have a good old honking debate? Of course, the fine print is he's going to win the, the argument, but he, he loves a good debate. And he would rather have his kids laying it down on the line than playing pretend and not really communicating. In fact, Martin Luther, he is one of the, the great um, leaders of the church of several centuries back, and why we are a Lutheran church, we come from that particular heritage. He literally said this about, um, about prayer. He said, it is an act of faith to lay the devil at God's doorstep. Where else? When you've got trouble and you don't understand what's coming down, the best place to go about it is to God, even if you're mad at him. And often, stuff starts happening right there in the conversation. Well, even if you're not mad at him, it's good to be talking with him because stuff happens. How do we get aware of his presence in our lives? By talking to him. Peter and John are heading to a group prayer meeting and they're going to be doing some conversation. And we can tell they had habits of conversation. And so it's no accident that they were listening and God directed them somewhere. Where did God direct them? To a certain entrance. They could have entered the temple. There were many entrances into the temple. This particular one was a side entrance. Don't ask why they were going there. But it just so happened to be that there was a person who had been lame from birth, disabled from birth, who was laid down right in front of the temple. Now let me tell you something about this guy. He's in trouble more ways than we think. Obviously, he can't walk. That's, you know, that's enough trouble just as it is. But back in the first century, and it's not in the Bible, okay? But a lot of people thought in the first century, if you had a disability, it meant you or your parents did something wrong and you were cursed. And God's judgment was on you and he did not love you and he never would. And your disability was a sign of how much God hated you. And we should hate you too. And here he is sitting outside the temple. Not inside, mind you. Outside excluded from God's love, so to speak. And he's begging. And we all know what we encounter people on, on the streets and they're begging. You know what we do? We walk and pretend they're not, they don't even exist. I'm ashamed to say I've done it. Or if we do, we kind of give them money and don't glance too much. We just kind of, well, you know, okay, quick. It's, it's our reaction to people who are in trouble often is to avoid. And it isn't even just people who are hurting. I don't care. They could be your neighbors. We don't know what to do with hurting people often, so we be, pretend they don't exist. Imagine what it would feel like if the people around you pretended you don't exist. You were a nobody. Worse than a nobody, you were cursed. And so he had his whole life reduced to survival. If I can just get enough money to make it through the day. I can just get enough money. And so... You can already hear him as, as Peter and John walk by and he, and he looks at him and says, Sir, can I have a quarter? Well, Peter and John actually stop and do something very strange. They look at him and it says here, they looked at him intently, which means they were very purposeful about engaging him. And I'm sure the guy sat there and went, Well, that's a new one. Someone's staring straight at me. What's going to happen? Am I going to get a lecture about what I've done wrong? I know. I'm going to get a little more money. It's going to be a good day today. It's about the two places it would go. That's all he's had experienced all his life. And then Peter says something very strange. I don't got no money. He said, okay, here comes the lecture. About, you know, if, if I would only get a job. But he says, well, I'll tell you what. I'll give you what I do have. And he says, silver and gold I don't have, but here's what I have. In the name of Jesus the Messiah, 
stand up and walk. And then he does more than talk. He goes and grabs the guy's arm and lifts him up. And it says, and this is wild, the man got strength in his body and then without even learning how to do this, remember he's never done this before, he began jumping up and down and dancing and praising God. So not only did God restore his muscles and and strengthen his knees and his bones, but then somehow he learned right on the spot how to do something that most of us, it takes a couple years. That's called walking. So already we've got miracle number one. He can walk. Miracle number two, he learns. He, he walks without even having to learn through it. But miracle number three is he gets his dignity back. And then it says, if you keep reading, that he walked with Peter and John into the temple. And I love that because it means that he's going to go experience God's love by the way he's already experienced it outside the temple. And I like that one too because it means maybe God's more afoot outside the temple than in it. Maybe God wants to be more active outside these walls than here. Now, he's active here, but maybe he wants to really show himself off out there. So what are we going to do when this is over? Are we going to think God's over? Or is he going to do something cool outside in our daily lives? Now, I mentioned that biblical miracles may or may not be supernatural. And this is really important. Miracles can be unexplainable, wild events. Like I have a Lutheran pastor friend of mine who lives in Madagascar, and he has literally prayed over people and watched them levitate three feet off the ground, and that's apparently fairly common, which is kind of bizarre. And the rest of us Westerners go, what? What is he smoking and may I have some, you know? But on the flip side, there are also miracles where nothing strange seems to occur. And I want to kind of talk about one in the Bible. And I think this one really matters because this is often where many of us live. I'm just going to read right through it and then we'll unpack it. This is from Luke 19, if you have your Bibles, beginning with verse 1. Now Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through it. A man there was named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was rich. Which we we say, well, what's the matter? He's got money. He's, He's got everything he needs. Let's see. He was trying to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was short in stature. His nickname was Danny DeVito. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree to see him because he was going to pass that way. When Jesus came to that place, he looked up and said, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried down and was happy to welcome him. All who saw it began to grumble and said, He has gone to be the guest of one who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, Look, half of my possessions, Lord, I will give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will pay back four times as much. Then Jesus said, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too was a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save that which is lost. Now, we look at Zacchaeus and say, What's the problem? He's wealthy. No obvious physical disability. Oh, yeah. And I'm not talking about his stature. Something went wrong in Zacchaeus' life. We don't know what it was. But he started making some bad decisions. Maybe it had to do with his height. Maybe people picked on him in grade school. We don't know. Maybe there were some resentments that started building up because of life circumstances. But the Romans came and offered him a job. And it goes like this. We would like you to collaborate with us. That's what you call someone who's helping the occupying powers. They're called traitors and collaborators to collaborate with us in collecting the taxes we want from your people. And they're very high. You think, West, you think Iowa taxes are bad? You ain't seen Rome. 
And not only that, your salary will come from whatever you can collect over that. So built into his job was legalized extortion. And it says that he was the chief tax collector, which means he had a group, which means, you know, he had Guido on this side with the violin case, you know, you know, and he had Joey over here who could break your legs, you know, and, and so he, Guido and Joey would go from door to door and extort as much as possible. And apparently they were very good at it because he said, you know, I'm coming here for some money. You don't want Guido to open that case because bad things happen when he opens the violin case and it doesn't mean he's playing Beethoven. Yeah, and maybe just for grins, Joey still broke the kneecaps, you know? But the point is, he word got around, you don't mess with Zacchaeus, give him what he wants, because he was very wealthy and probably very much hated. And you can tell that, because even though the crowd feared him, here comes Jesus, and there's a chance for revenge. There's a chance for payback. Zacchaeus, like everyone else, wants to see Jesus, and they block him. Think about that. They block him. Because in a normal society, rich people got to sit in the front row. And the town is so angry at him that they're blocking him. And they don't care about Guido and Joey anymore. <clears throat> Take that violin out of the case. See what we do. There's more of us than you. Zacchaeus had dug a pretty deep hole. And there were consequences. How many of us have faced life where we've dug a hole and, and we're wondering if we can ever get out of it? where we wonder if there's any way back. And from every standpoint, it looks like there's no way back, and we're stuck with whatever we've done to ourselves. That was Zacchaeus. And no amount of money could buy it off. So he does something incredibly humiliating. He climbs a tree, and we think, what's up with that? So you climb a tree. Rich people did two things they did not do. Number one, rich people did not run, because that was a sign of humiliation. They had servants to go fetch things. And rich people did not climb trees. That's what children did, and adults did not do that. And Zacchaeus is forced by the crowd to humiliate himself publicly by climbing a tree to see Jesus. That also tells us the amount of desperation, because it meant he was so desperate he was willing to publicly humiliate himself to see if there was any hope, any way to get out of the hole. Jesus stops and looks straight at him, it says. And I bet the crowd's going, here it comes, payback. Jesus is going to rip him 70 ways sideways for everything he's done to us and then tell him he's cursed forever. Jesus opens his mouth all right, but what comes out shocks the crowd and infuriates them. He says, you, let's do dinner. He literally invites himself over for dinner. And not only that, he invites himself to stay over. Now, there's only two times that this happens in Jewish culture in the first century when they're your friends. That's actually only one time. That's it. When they're your friends. Jesus was publicly declaring this man to be his friend. And the town is livid. What do you have to say for yourself, Jesus? How dare you? Where's the justice in that? This man deserves to be at the very minimum publicly shamed by you. And at the maximum, if you are who you say you are, curse him. He has ruined his life and he's ruined ours. How does Jesus respond? How will he explain himself? How will he explain himself? He lets Zacchaeus do that. Zacchaeus opens his mouth and he says, I am going to give half my possessions to the poor and wherever I have extorted from someone, I'm going to give it back four times over. 
Now, this tells us one thing. Zacchaeus was extremely rich if he could afford that. But secondly, it talks about a life completely changed just by the fact that Jesus engaged him. Just like John and Peter, Jesus looks at him and there's nothing supernatural, no levitating off the ground. Zacchaeus did not float down from the tree. He had to climb down like the rest of us. But his life got turned completely upside down or should we say right side up for the first time in his entire life. And indeed, this impacted not just Zacchaeus, it impacted the entire town. For someone who had terrorized this town for so long, his life had changed and justice came with that town and with that changed life. And that is indeed, folks, a miracle. And the power of God was made known. And it also pointed to the author of the miracle. Lives change and miracles happen. Now, so far we've been talking about miracles at the time of Jesus. But I think the important question is, do miracles still happen today? Now, I want to give you an answer, and that is very simply, yes. Absolutely. No doubt about it. I want to read something from one of, of Hope's leaders, and, and you may have met her. Her name's Barb Chris. She's the director of adult spiritual formation, and I know she's, she's partnered with you all in, in, in helping people grow in Christ. And here's her story, but I want to give you a little bit of background first. Um, Barb, and starting around 2005, had begun to get excruciating pain in her back and down her left side to the point where it just completely was about to destroy her life. And they tried all the things you could think of to, to alleviate the pain, surgery, medication, exercises, therapy, you name it. Two years later, 2007, she goes to the doc and learns the condition is permanent. This intolerable condition that makes it impossible for her to even sit down is now permanent, they're afraid. And there's no amount of anything they can do other than some medication to dull the pain. I remember seeing this in her office where she literally, they had, we had redone her office so she could stand rather than sit. So I'd see her stand all day. It was, it was kind of sad. Now her first response, like many of us, was to throw a big old pity party. But then, just um, like many people in Scripture, like that guy I told you about at, at my church when I was in high school, First Methodist, she began to wrestle with God. First in anger, then in confusion and frustration. And finally, God began to respond to her. And so she wrote a letter to her daughters, and, and this is part of the letter. She wrote, God and I continue to have lots of conversations, if you know what I mean. And I lean on him a lot. Sometimes I am really angry, sometimes grateful and hum humbled, other times just frustrated and confused. But my faith sustains me, for ultimately it gives me hope. Without this, I truly do not know how I would walk through each day. Now, here's the wild part. She wrote that, and seven days later, something happened. And let me just read. I'm going to just quote her from her letter. I woke up, went through normal morning routine, sat at the computer for a while, which normally immediately would cause pain when I get up. So I also took my normal regimen of medication. Sometime later during that day, I realized something felt different, and I realized I had no pain. And it felt so foreign to me having lived with two years and ten months of constant pain in those areas, regardless of medication. I immediately began praising God for allowing the pain-free feeling of my left side. And later I went to my 10 o'clock in the morning meeting with my staff team and Pastor Caroline and told them what had happened to me. They acknowledged that this was a God thing, a bit of an understatement. And I noticed the freedom of my body movements as we proceeded through the meeting. At this point, I just claimed the miracle and prayed that the pain would not return. 
No, later that day, some of the pain did return, so Barb asked her friend, Melissa Johnson Matthews, to pray for her. And Barb continues to write, I told Melissa that God did not give me this pain-free experience for nothing, and that I felt compelled not to allow it to return. I desperately needed her to pray on my behalf. We went into the chapel, and she began prayer on my behalf and asked that God would reveal himself and that we would be obedient. Melissa was very clear that this was something new to her, but she was willing to give it a try. She asked that I would be willing to surrender myself to God. I really struggled with this as I truly had to admit I was not able to accept my circumstances and could not be joyful in all circumstances. I admitted that perhaps the only way for me to be healed was to be able to have peace with my circumstances. As of this point, my life was not there. Again, we've seen this pattern, and I don't know what it is, and we can never control God, but here's the deal. It seems that one of the things that gets in the way of God working in our lives, whether it's supernatural or not, is when we decide we want to stay in charge. When we start dictating to God, change me this way, in this time, and this process, it seems that God stands back and says, well, you give that a shot. And again, I can't give you a magic formula, and there's nothing we can do to make God do anything he otherwise wouldn't do. But it seems that stuff happens when we start letting go. Whether it's an addiction, whether it's pain in your family life, unresolved relationships, maybe it is a physical disability, maybe it's financial troubles, maybe your mortgage is upside down, maybe your job, maybe you've lost one or can't find one. You name it, it seems that stuff starts happening, and I can't guarantee what it's going to be. But stuff starts happening when we let go, and that's what Barb did. Now, here's what she continues. During this time of prayer, Mel was praying and and claiming the power of the Holy Spirit to work through us. She then asked me how it was, and I said it felt like my entire body was realigning. I knew that the thing attached to the nerve root of my spine had been released, causing everything else to return to its normal condition. I was sore but felt completely different and knew that I was healed. Bob writes later that she went home and she began praising God at home so much that her husband, who was very happy about it, but asked her if she could just pipe it down a little bit. (laughs) She continues, The next morning when I woke up, I knew it was permanent. The area in my lower back was completely released. The pain was gone from my lower back, along with the shooting neurological pain down my leg and foot. My husband called to see what, how I was doing, and I told him that I was still somewhat sore, but that my lower back had healed for sure. The other amazing part was the amount of energy I had and how free my mind was. I didn't realize how the pain had taken over so much of my life, physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually. All of that imprisonment was gone. I felt completely released, mind, body, and spirit. You see, Jesus wants to do more than heal your physical body. He wants to heal your emotions. He wants to heal your spirit. He wants to heal your relationships. And often when something happens to us, it it messes with all of them. And Jesus wants to put all of that back together. Finally, she writes, Later at an ISU tailgate party, yeah, um, during a conversation with my son, he asked me how I was doing. And I responded, Do you know how much you have prayed for me? daily and nightly that God would heal me and how you have desperately pleaded for a miracle for me. And then she looked at him straight in the eye and says, that miracle has happened. That miracle has happened. Do miracles still happen today? I think so. Now, I think there's even more. I almost feel like a Ginzu knife commercial. But wait, there's more. One more thing. Now, this is the take-it-home part. I'm going to give you a homework assignment, and it's this. 
You see, miracles aren't just about Jesus doing the stuff 2,000 years ago or about some of his disciples. If you start reading through the Bible, it's clear that Jesus wanted God's power not only to flow through him, but through his followers as well. Uh, Luke chapter 9, verses 1 and 2 is this. Then Jesus called the twelve together and gave them power and gave them authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And then he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And that story is repeated several times throughout the Gospels. And not only just to the twelve, but also to all his followers. Messed up, doubting, kind of wondering, clumsy people like you and me. He sent out with this power and this authority because it's very clear that Jesus intended for miracles to keep happening. You cannot escape that in Scripture. You have to simply disagree with the Bible if you don't believe that. But what the text tells us is Jesus clearly intended for miracles to keep happening and there's no amount of fancy theology we can do to say it's not the case. So how do we engage in that? How do we live into that, 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 that kind of scary but kind of cool truth without looking like we've gone off the deep end and often joined a cult or something? I want to give you four things. Well, actually five. Number one, stay in conversation with God. Remember, when you're talking to God, stuff's more likely to happen. In good times, bad times, all the times, just begin a running conversation with Him. Number two, ask Him to lead you to broken people and then let Him. And guess what? That ain't going to be hard. You got a pulse, you're broken in one way or another, and you need the life-transforming power of God in your life. And often it will be people you least suspect God will say, go there. And when you go there, like Jesus, like Peter and John, engage with them, take them seriously. For some of you, that will mean striking up a conversation. For others of you, will be not talking, but listening. And for some of you still, it might mean just being there. One of the most amazing things I've discovered, once I was um, doing a pastoral call when I was an intern pastor, and I was terrified. It was a horribly painful situation. And the pastor, my, my mentor sent me there and says, no, I want you to go there. And I was like, please, no, just send me to the dentist without Novocaine, you know. And so I'm there, and I am messing it up everywhere. I'm just like, oh, I'm just making this worse. Well, we got to our review session the next week, and the pastor says, I want to review that. Uh, and I was like, oh, boy, here it comes. And he says, the family thought you walked on water. I was like, why? I screwed it up. And he says, no, you don't understand. It isn't about what you said. It was that you were there. I have a friend of mine in in Chicago, and he puts it this way. Friends show up. And half the time, healing comes from just showing up. Now, when you show up, listen to what God wants to do through you for them. And many times it's just a hug. Many times it's listening. Sometimes it's talking. And sometimes it's praying for them for healing. And you can pray for anything because what's the worst God's going to say? No, right? So be crazy. Someone's got cancer, pray it goes away. Someone's got a broken leg, pray for healing. You know? I mean, what is it? So you look bad. Big deal. I know statistically, the more we pray, the more stuff happens. It's kind of like when we talk to God. And then stand back and watch the fun. That's number five. Stand back and watch the fun. Because I guarantee, if you begin to listen to God, if you begin to let him lead you to broken people, if you begin to respond how God would have you respond, from everything from just being there to praying for them, you will see change. And and it'll be pretty amazing. Amazing.